This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Shadow Ballet, a novel of mystery and intrigue. My author joining me from, at this point, in the United States, the western United States, I think he's in Arizona, I'm not sure, or New Mexico, one of those areas, Dan Reagan. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you. And how are you doing? You're uh, actually a resident of Hawaii and have made it to the mainland in order to do interviews and probably just kick back and have fun. I'm here on vacation and business with the book and trying to get things out there for people to know that I'm uh, published and want them to read the book. Fabulous. Uh, let me just spell your last name because I'm pronouncing it Reagan. It is spelled R-A-G-O-N uh, so that people who might do a search uh, can can locate you. You have uh, published this at 546 pages, your first novel that's been published. How long have you desired to be an author? Actually, probably since I was in my teens. And you're now in your 20s, so it hasn't been that long. Yes, we want. Do you really want to talk about the first number in my name? No, in my age? no, I, I, no, I, I don't think we need to do that. You, uh, you have uh, desired to be an author a long time. This is a, a rather, I would say, a, I will use the word loquacious. You have, you have a lot of words in here. Five hundred and forty-six pages is a, is a pretty ambitious project. How long did it take, Dan? The first page, first words went on page in nineteen ninety-three. Wow. And uh, yeah. did, did it take? It took, uh, about, it took me about three years to actually develop the story, and since then it has been another however many years it is for me to reach the point where it was ready for publication and somebody was willing to publish. Are you a perfectionist when it comes to the details? Yes. Uh huh. And your background in in career, other than being an author, would it also reflect that? I would think so. I am a retired California pilot patrol officer. I am also a basically a retired pilot. I had my own flight operation for five years, and I have worked as a business management consultant for a number of years. So, yes, attention to detail is a pretty much part of my nature. Phenomenal. When you began the story of Shadow Ballet, did you start with an outline, or was this something that developed as you were going through the creative process? Actually, my methodology was to develop the characters to fit into the location that I had and let the story develop on the basis of my characters. Uh, they essentially characters told me their story, and I wrote it down. Shadow Ballet is a, is a fascinating title. What does it emote from your perspective, and how does it fit the story? The story is one that is built around the shadowy kind of nature of clandestine operations and the the way that when you're doing an investigation into a criminal activity, it seems like you're chasing shadows and mm. never find yourself where you can grab a hold of anything solid. And that's where the shadow ballet comes in. The shadows keep dancing and you keep trying to catch up to it. You uh, mentioned in your personal bio that you uh, were, a, uh, uh, as a young guy, built a cabin, and uh, there is a reference in your first chapter about a cabin. Is uh, that some of that reminiscence that's been carried over into the storyline? Yes. When I was 17, I helped to refit a cabin at Big Lagoon, and when I was there, I came up with the idea that this would be a great place to set a mystery novel, and... That idea never went away. It just took a long time for it to materialize. Would you call this a heavy action novel, or is it character-driven? It is pretty much character-driven, yes. And what is the 
primary mystery, if you can share that without giving away too much of the detail, that the reader is going to get drawn into? The primary mystery, as far as the lead part of the story, is the dead body that shows up on beach. But the characters that are involved bring with them some activities that are from the shadows of clandestine activities on the part of the government and how the people got involved with that and other parts of the underworld of criminal activity. So this, this, that's why it's the title of Shadow Ballet, is that you have these shadowy areas that are around us all the time and have them dancing and balancing and moving and maneuvering around each other. That's how the story develops. And in bringing out all of the story, it is one where I hope I surprise people at the end. Is there another author that's either contemporary or historically that influenced your style? I read a lot of different authors, and I try to draw what I like from all of them. Now, each individually has certain characteristics that I like, and whether it's Robert Parker for his rather crisp and tight way of telling a story with dialogue, or Dean Koontz for his kind his, his way of describing things with creating pictures with words, which is what I try to do. And uh, I've got a whole list of others, but I can't get one off the top of my head right now to go along with that. But uh, Connolly is another one that I like because of his police-based novel and James Patterson. I, I read a lot of other mm. authors, and as I say, I try to draw from them better ways to say things my own way. Is Gene Parker your main character in the novel, or are there other supporting actors? Gene is actually not the main character. The, the, the story is, is based around uh, the activities of detectives of John Ragsdale and Tom Schroeder, but Gene Parker is involved with one of the main characters that they keep bouncing onto in their investigation. And where is the story set? Is it set in contemporary times, or is it uh, past tense? It, it is basically the middle 90s, as far as its time set. This was when I was writing the story, and that's where the timing on it was set, and I kept it there. You uh, are in a genre that has a lot of uh, competition as far as storylines and uh, people trying to get other readers' attentions. Why do you think they will gravitate to your novel, and what do you think will stand out to them when they finally start reading Shadow Ballad? Ballet. <laughs> ballet. Sorry about that, hope- Ballet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Ballet, that has an O in it. It does have an O in it, yes. <laughs> I think that what will be something that will attract them is essentially the attention to detail in the story of keeping, providing enough detail so that as the story unfolds, everything is clearly supported so that even though it may be a surprising twist when you think about what came about previously in the story, it's all there, it's all supported, and it's an interesting and exciting and enjoyable read. Is there... Is there a specific, not a market, but do you think this is going to be appealing to a broad audience, or is it a little narrower in your perspective? I think it will appeal to a broad audience. Uh, There is a romantic story involved in it that will attract people who read uh, romance novels. There is the detective story that will attract people who like to read detective stories. There is the clandestine side of it, which will bring people into those who, you know, bring people who like to read about international intrigue. And uh, we place all of those things together, and uh, they, the, the ballet of shadows that goes on amongst them, I think it will satisfy a very broad eye. You've mentioned your main character is actually a detective. Is his role in this sufficient or interesting enough that you have extended that and maybe are going to do a follow-up? to this book? This is the opening book of a trilogy, and the following novels have already been written. 
Fabulous. Fabulous. Are they ready for distribution, or are they still in the work stages? They are uh, within a very short time of being ready. The final edit kind of a circumstance on on the second one and a couple of edits to do on the third one, but they are, the stories have been written and told, and uh, they're, they're pretty close to ready to go, yeah. You've mentioned that this is really character-driven in its context and approach. Is there an action scene in here that might grab a producer in Hollywood and make him want to uh, do the big screen version of this? It would be difficult to choose which one you want because there are action scenes. And they are, uh, it starts out with an action scene. And it, be, and it ends with an action scene. And in between, there's, there's six or eight more. So, yes, there are action scenes involved. And your goal at this point is to become a uh, well-known published author from this point forward. That is correct. Yeah, one of the neat things also about uh, visiting with Dan is uh, he has a very close friend, uh, Charles, who is uh, also there and has read his book. I thought I'd ask Charles about the book and what his opinion was of the style. Charles, uh, tell me about it. What do you think that people will find interesting? Uh, oh, first, first thing off, I'm... I'm a, a factual type of reader. I'm not much into mysteries, it's, you know, anything like that. So this is kind of my first go around with it. I took on this to basically look and help a friend and give him an opinion on this book. I found myself dredgingly opening the first page, and by the second page, going, well, let's see what else is going on. And the third and the fourth, and it kept compelling me to turn the next page. I would just get to the point where it was like, I have to see what's happening next. That's the style of writing, Daniel. Not only does he put you right in the place, you will smell the 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 smells of the Humboldt County and and uh, and area. You'll smell the pine. You'll feel the fog surround your body. That's the degree of uh, emphasis he will put on placing you in the right place. You will. Feel the characters. You will know what they're thinking. You will feel their back thoughts, the thoughts that are suspicions that they're getting, the police's interactions. You'll feel the ignorance of, of some of the answers that they get. And it, all of these things combine together with the, from the scenery to the story in as, its complexity as it is, but clearly illustrated. Um, it, it creates such a complexity telling force that you're not able to set it down for any length of time. You're wow. drawn back to Well, Charles, that's a great commendation, and I will mention to my uh, readers, or to my listeners, that this is uh, unpaid and unsolicited, I guess. I don't know. I, maybe maybe he's going to buy yeah. a coffee or something, but thanks, Charles, for sharing that, too. Yeah, I I was fortunate enough to get a, uh, to get a, a preview of the draft before it even got published. Excellent. And so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's well, well worth the read and the time you will spend. You won't put it down. Charles, Dan, it's been great visiting with you. This, a novel of mystery and intrigue, Shadow Ballet, and author Dan Reagan. Dan, where do we get copies of your book? It is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and, of course, from my publisher, iUniverse.com, Google also has it available in their G-Print, and I'm not sure where else it has been distributed from my publisher, but I know of those locations to search, and those are the places I would first direct people. Have you uh, launched your website or fan page yet? I have not seen it yet, no. This is brand new. The book has only been available for a matter of uh, a couple of weeks, so if <laughs> I it's haven't fresh. seen all the pieces yet. They're still coming together. <laughs> well, best of luck with that, and uh, we won't call it a ballot. It's a ballet. Uh, the book of title, again, is Shallow. Oh, we can't read Shallow. It's it's really a great book. <laughs> right, wait, wait, wait. Let me, let me say this for sure, you. Go ahead. Because you seem to give me fun. I appreciate that. Yeah, please the describe the name of your book. Shat- the, the, the title is 
Shadow Ballet. The author is Dan Reagan. There you go. Well, thank you, Dan, for correcting me and getting this straightened out. Authors uh, are uh, are an interesting bunch, and my listeners will enjoy reading your book, I'm sure. So thank you, Dan, for joining me. I hope to visit with you in the future, and once you get that web page up and running, I'm sure people will uh, gravitate to that as well. Uh, they can reach it under your name, Dan Reagan, R-A-G-O-N, and uh, locate this book and anything else that comes up in the future. Thanks again for joining me today. Thank you. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With Baby and Toddler Instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, A True Free Market. Conversations on Gaining Liberty and Justice Through Economics. And the author is Stephen Taft. And Steve joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Steve. Hello, Steve. Good to be with you. Well, great to have you on the show. This is going to be a great discussion. You have a very unique view of what's going on in the country and the economic part of our country, which, of course, without economics, nothing happens. Uh, You make a statement, a free market cannot thrive when constructed in ignorance of economics. That's a pretty strong statement. You also say, we have also seen markets fail, but we have not learned the nature of a true free market. So that's the kind of the focus of our discussion. Before we get into it, Steve, tell us a little bit about your background. You have an impressive economics background, and then we'll get into some of the details of your book. I got into Wall Street when I got the bug to have uh, kids, and I felt like I needed to make money. But my training on Wall Street, uh, and I started at Lehman Brothers, and for anyone who pays attention, I left Lehman Brothers years before the collapse, so it wasn't my fault. (laughs) Uh, uh, But my training there, I, I felt, was very shallow. And so I started going to uh, night school, and being in New York, there, there are many schools uh, to choose from, and I, I went to most of them that offered classes in economics and finance and security analysis and all that kind of stuff. And economics, uh, it soon became clear, under, under, was the underpinning to everything that happens on Wall Street, and yet it was probably the least discussed uh, a topic uh, within you know, in the day-to-day of the firm. So uh, I really focused on economics because it seemed important. Uh, I think I was right. It is important. And, and it became kind of a, a passion and a hobby. Uh, and I've just been studying for a long time. Uh, the book uh, that you kindly mentioned, The True Free Market, I, I really thought about for probably 20 years before I decided I knew what to say and started writing it about four and a half years ago. You say we need a great debate about capitalism. Uh, we're talking about the wrong thing in all these political discussions. We need to talk about capitalism. Yes, and uh, capitalism is a wonderful thing. Capitalism uh, has the potential. It's the only economic system I know that has the ability to unleash uh, an individual's full potential, as well as uh, take care of a society uh, collectively. Uh, You know, you can take care of uh, other systems, just don't do that. 
So uh, capitalism is is the be-all and end-all to economics as far as I'm concerned. But uh, we need to understand uh, capitalism better uh, to do it better. Uh, I think you you mentioned, Steve, uh, uh, the comment about uh, we don't understand the nature of a true free market. And I think that's true. Uh, if, if you listen to our uh, politicians who, who make the policy, they're really making decisions based on what uh, their base wants or the public wants, what the poll numbers show. And very rarely, if ever, do you hear them discussing these big questions that affect all of our lives in the economic world that are founded on uh, fundamental economics. It's, it's all about people's opinion, and it's not about how things really work. Uh, and that I have found very frustrating over the years and uh, felt like this book was a way to help tweak the conversation and, and get us talking about economics as it works for real people and, and not in the political realm where policies have a temporary uh, satisfaction for, for people on one side or the other of the aisle, but don't really solve anything in the long run. You focus on haves versus have-nots. Of course, we have that all in politics today. We hear so much about it. And the way it works right now, it's not, it's not that capitalism is bad, as you point out, but we've, we've given it rules that create tensions between the haves and have-nots. Yes. Uh, for example, uh, the, just the, the basic, what seems, uh, you know, there's the expression, there's two things that are, that are uh, uh, necessary in life, death and taxes. Those are the two things you can't avoid. Well, the taxes we created, okay, and, and the fact that taxes fall on income, for example, was our choice. As, as people, as a citizenry. It, it's not as natural as death by any stretch. Uh, so what happens when you impose an in income tax? Well, everything uh, that we buy has a price attached to it, obviously. And every price is, is priced so that the producer of that product or the provider of that service can make a profit. This is in general terms. And a profit becomes what's left after the business expenses and taxes are paid. So every price has an after-tax profit built into it f for the producer that we all are paying for. So in effect, when we buy something, uh, whether it's a, a box of envelopes or a new car, uh, we're, we're paying a price that includes, as a piece of it, a profit for the manufacturer of that box of envelopes or that car. So what does this mean? This means that's, that's normal. No, no, that's not rocket science. But what this means is that uh, every price is set according to the people who pay income tax. Now, as you may remember, you know, about half our country, a little less, but about half, don't pay income taxes. So even the people who are not paying income tax directly are still in whatever they buy helping to pay the income tax for the people who do pay income taxes. You with me so far? Definitely. And so what happens is that just by having there be an income tax, poor people, because they're helping to pay the income tax for the producers who tend to be the wealthier people, uh, are paying more than they otherwise would and are therefore uh, incrementally a little poorer than they otherwise would be. And the wealthier people and the producers are, because there's an income tax, are having that tax helped to be paid for 
by everyone who buys their product. And so therefore, they're a little richer than they otherwise would be. So, so having, my contention is having an income tax, just that basic thing that seems so fundamental to our economy, having chosen to do that in 1913, uh, has created a scenario where there's an ever-growing uh, divide between rich and poor, between the haves and the haves-nots. That I'm not saying there wouldn't be wealthy and there wouldn't be poor otherwise. Of course there would be. This is capitalism, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the degree of, of the gulf between them is far wider with an income tax than it would be without it. Seems like the news is filled with discussions about different ways to create uh, or to change the income tax system, but you're saying it's not the right conversation. I am absolutely saying it's not the right conversation. Uh, You know, I mean, if you're a capitalist, why do you want to make capital more expensive by taxing it? That's backwards to me. Uh, You know, when when there's only one thing uh, that we don't make, Capital, by the way, for those who don't follow this closely, is everything we do make. Capital is, is everything we produce. It's, this, it's uh, the salaries we get for providing a service at our jobs. Uh, so, so capital is everything we work for. Uh, and everything we buy is capital. By taxing that stuff, we're just making uh, our lives not only more expensive for many of us, for most of us, but it also distorts the value of, of all these things in our lives, including our salaries. So there's only one thing in an economy that people don't make, that people don't produce. And that one thing is the land. Land is there before there's ever uh, any economy. Land is there before people arrive, because otherwise there's no place to plant a flag. Right, So the value of land is 100% created because a community develops on and around that land. So the more uh, active uh, the the community is, uh, the higher the value of the land is going to be under it. Make sense? It does. Definitely. I understand. There's only so so much land. so, So the value of land... To me, because it's created by the community, becomes a natural source of funds for the community. And if you're if you're taxing the value of land, not the buildings on it, just the land, because the buildings on it are capital. If you get away from taxing capital and just tax the value of land, which nobody made, uh, then you're not distorting the values of salaries and and other capital goods in the economy. You're not uh, creating uh, this increasing gulf between rich and poor uh, because you you get away from that. And and it's it's a neutral, it's an economically neutral tax to tax land value, and uh, it eliminates many of the problems that have led to... uh, our ever-increasing size of government. Well, the country thrived for over 100 years without an income tax. That's true, but there were capital taxes. Certainly. Uh, there were, there were, was, I mean, there had, know, to, be. There there were, had to be uh, certain government... Tariffs and right. fees and right. all kinds of uh, capital taxes levied, not on income. But uh, as one can find in the book, the effects are the same. Uh, you know, the, these distorting effects that I started to describe, but when you tax capital, are not just the result of income taxes, but from any tax on capital. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it seems small, to be sure. Uh, and in one person's life, they may not be able to feel uh, much of a difference. But when you consider that we're a nation of over 300 million maybe 150 million active uh, working in the economy, that becomes a big effect. And when you're looking at the big picture, 
as they hopefully do in Washington, then it becomes palpable. And, and we start to see uh, when we tax properly and we have our capitalism operating as it can operate instead of the way it does now, when we unleash it to, to act like capitalism should, our deficits come down, the need for, for all these fix-it programs that comprise our government, many of them go away. Uh, so we can start to shrink the government. We can start to consequently free up the population even more uh, to do what people are going to do. Uh, and by the way, I'll say this too, when you're taxing the value of land, it creates an incentive to uh, care for that land because if you're on the hook for the taxes, uh, if that land gets soiled you know, or polluted somehow, you're still paying the tax on land that is no longer as productive as it used to be. So there's a built-in incentive to take care of the place. You know, and still not distort the economy. So uh, this is, uh, I realize, a new way of thinking about economics for many people. Uh, but Steve, as you mentioned, there's uh, a, a need for uh, a new debate, a new conversation right. in our debate. Um, a couple, a month or two ago. Uh, David Brooks, who's a conservative uh, columnist in the New York Times, talked about uh, that there's a coming debate about capitalism, about you know what the role of government is in, in taking care of us, the citizens. And uh, he's right. There is a debate coming. Uh, the Nobel Prize was just given to Angus Deaton. Uh, some of the work that he did to earn that Nobel Prize in economics was on how economics works at the level of real life, not theoretical uh, effects. And uh, his work shows that you have to focus on the ability of the less wealthy to take care of themselves, not on the wealthy. The wealthy are going to be fine. Uh, now, some people are going to hear that and saying, I'm attacking the rich. I am not attacking the rich. If you can be a billionaire, so be it. Kudos. And by the way, you shouldn't have to pay a dime of what you earned to the government. But what you don't earn is the value of the land that you use to make your money. Well, there... you know, access to land is like the uh, admission ticket to the economy. It's hard to work if you're not putting your foot down on the ground somewhere. A very novel and different innovative approach to talking about a true free market. We've been listening to Stephen Taft. He's the author of his book, A True Free Market, Conversations on Gaining Liberty and Justice Through Economics. Steve, what's the best way to get your book? The best way to get the book is uh, Amazon.com. Uh, barnesandnoble.com of course it's available at iUniverse.com uh, it's also available on Google Play and Apple Play and if you walk into a local bookstore they should be able to order it for you definitely uh, and, and I, I just want to say before we go that uh, look I realize that this is not a common conversation I'm trying to instigate here uh, but what I am trying to do and I hope the effect will be is that just we can tweak the conversation that we're having as a culture and just start to see what the effects are, what the unintended consequences of our decisions are, so that we can begin to be more efficient as a, as a community of uh, citizens and government working hand in hand. And hopefully over time we can, we can see that... Uh, not everything we take for granted is the way it ought to be. There are alternatives out there, and we should start talking about them, even if they don't happen right away or ever. At least it's a better conversation. So that's, that's my goal, is to get a better conversation going. 
Well, it makes sense. If things aren't working, then why keep doing the same things? That's called insanity. So let's try, exactly. a, try a new approach, and that's what your book is all about. Steve, we've got to go. We really appreciate you joining us on iUniverse Radio. Well, it was great to be here. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to the living room a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled How to Enjoy Life with Bipolar Disorder. Hmm. Subtitled Your Tow Truck is Waiting. I love the title. My author joining me from California is Ann Latta Donnan. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you. I'm glad to have a chance to talk about this illness. This is a this is a, a, a probably a very needed book. Uh, many people don't understand what the term bipolar means. It is a, a phrase that has been bantied about in the medical community and the and in the health community for a while. Share a little of your story and how this book got to be written. Okay. Well, bipolar one is the most severe form of it. That's what I have. Then there's bipolar 2, where the manic episodes are not as pronounced. And then there's cyclothymia, where the person cycles uh, hours at a time. Instead of, in my case, I would cycle two or three times a year. Mm. And um, I came to write the book because um, I had talked to a lot of people, and they said, well, you need to write this down to help people. Because it started when I was 12 years old. And I went to many psychiatrists, and they were not able to diagnose it till I was 19. Wow. So I had seven long years of cycling, and um, looking back and knowing what we know today, they probably would be able to have diagnosed it, but uh, they didn't know much about it then. And you use the term cycling. You're not referring to an athletic event. This is, this is actually oh, no, an emotional no. roller coaster. Cycling from, from manic to depressive and then having a normal period for a while and then cycling again. Incredible. And looking back uh, at 12 years of age, and I'm not going to ask your age, but how did you uh, how did you exhibit uh, what were the what were the first signs of uh, of this hitting you? Well, it always seemed to start in the fall when school started. I would get really keyed up with all the events. I was talking 90 miles an hour. I was not making sense. I was hallucinating that I was floating down the street like six inches above the sidewalk, and hmm. I'd move my arms like waving, like I was swimming, mm-hmm. moving forward, and. Right just looked and acted crazy and a lot of people just thought this was my personality that um, I had teenage hormones kicking in and the first two times I was hospitalized they just put me on tranquilizers and the mood ends in two to three months or weeks depending on the person in my case it was two to three months after being on tranquilizers I would just come down and be back to normal and they didn't know until it happened again and again and again. Did you have any uh, incidents of this in your family? I, for example, if I look at my family well, history, there are things yes. that, that kind of Yes, my trend. mother had something very similar. Okay. And were you aware of it as you were a child uh, in that environment? Or was this something uh, you discovered I later? I 12. What's not interesting 12. is that, hmm. see, it often comes out at puberty or at life change in your 40s and 50s, you know, menopause. Right. Um, And so it happened to me and my mother at the same time. 
That's amazing. You yeah. ha- you have a and you have been able to function well. I mean, you are you have a degree. You have uh, been a teacher. You have been in in uh, instructional uh, areas and working with people and children. Uh, so this is not something that completely controlled your life. It became something well, that was controllable. Yes, it did. I had to just drop out of what I was doing when I felt bad. I dropped out of school a number of times just because I simply couldn't deal with hmm. going to class and sitting for an hour, let alone sitting six hours a day. I just couldn't do it. I was too keyed up. I had to walk around quickly, talk quickly. Uh, I, I just was not able to go to school. So I went to summer school every year and made up my grades and got good grades that way. And then it took me five years to get through college and get a bachelor of science degree in architecture, which I was really happy to do. I was really glad uh, that I could achieve that. I know of some people that take 10, 15, 20 years to get out of college. So five years is not a bad uh, time frame, I don't think, in uh, completing and getting a degree. (laughs) Right. Well, I had to deal with the illness. You know, I had to drop out three times. So that was why. You also. Uh, But I'm thankful. I had wonderful parents who helped me through this. And they kept saying, we know something's wrong. We don't know what it is, but we're going to stick with it until we find out what it is. And like I said, I saw a lot of psychiatrists and was hospitalized. Hmm. On my third hospitalization is when they decided what it was. They diagnosed me correctly. And how, how long ago was that that you were diagnosed properly? I was 19. You were 19. I'm 66 now. Well, I didn't want and to know that you were over 60, then. but that's okay. I, I, I wasn't going to ask your age, but thanks for sharing oh, it. Oh, <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. I, mean, I, I meant to say that, see, it happened to me all a long time ago. Sure. And since I've been on the medicine, um, I'd say it cures about 80 to 85% of the illness, the other 15% is that I have to sleep well, eat well, not get very stressed, you know, just avoid right. situations where I'm going to be stressed, and, um, you know, eating a healthy diet, all this being healthy in every way possible helps a person with mental illness. Now, you sound like a very intelligent lady with a high IQ. I don't know if it's high IQ or not, but is there any correlation to, uh, I was going to use the word brilliance, I don't want to uh, assume that you are brilliant, but I think you are, uh, putting that kind of uh, stress on a person, would that possibly be a contributing factor? Yes, I think that a lot of creative people are very easily stressed. Um, They can live in a world of creativity, beautiful artists just using gorgeous colors. Like I really relate to Vincent Van Gogh because he most likely had this. Hmm. And he had tremendous creative periods, but then he had months and months and years even when he was in a sanitarium, and all that they could do was put him in hot baths and uh, have him walk in the garden, and he painted and you know, he there there wasn't any medicine for them in those days. Absolutely, so I'm very amazing. lucky. We're we're all very lucky. If you have a family member who has this, it's one more thing I need to say that's important. If you're worried about a loved one having it, you have to make sure they get off alcohol and drugs before you can make a diagnosis. The doctor simply cannot tell if a person's strung out on something like an amphetamine or a euphoric or whatever. It's going to confuse the doctor and and family members as well that it's highly highly important for the person to be free of alcohol and drugs good advice you also have obviously or i won't say obviously but apparently a, a a fairly good strong support system surrounding you in the uh in the range of people and um, not only the medical staff but others that have have assisted you on the way Right, right. Well, I say the first credit, um, I have a strong belief in God, and I believe that God wanted me to go through this, and I didn't really understand why until I started writing the book, and then I realized that it could help other people. Um, I did not enjoy going through it again. People go, wasn't it cathartic? No, (laughs) it was a pain. I hated it, but I did it to help others, and my story is pretty typical. It's unique according to your personality. Uh, but it's t- the, the, the symptoms are typical, that a depressed person doesn't want to walk, talk, eat, doesn't want to do anything, just wants to sit there. Just depressing mm. is so hard to deal with. And, and then the manic episode, you're talking so quickly, it'd be hard for a doctor to talk to you, to get a word in edgewise. Amazing. Did you have other family members that also were diagnosed with similar challenges? 
or were uh, you an only child? Yes, right. How long did it take, Anne, to, to get your story into print? Well, it took me 10 years because I wrote it, uh, and I had a book group who read every part of the book, and every chapter we'd go through and correct each other's work. I'd read theirs, they'd read mine, and then we'd meet together and share all of our conclusions, and then I'd rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. So I'd say it took me about an hour a page, but it took me years to redo each page. I tried to make it as perfect as possible. Anything that will be a surprise in here to people who may have been exposed to to the uh, the joys of uh, bipolar disorder? Well, parts of it are very funny. You know, you say things that are complete nonsense, and when someone tells you about it later, you can laugh. Like, my children were 11 and 13, and I told my daughter, the 13-year-old, I said, now give Christopher a bath. Like, that's a joke, because he'd been taking his own baths for eight years. Right. And I said, give him a bath, and don't pull the plug or he'll go out with the bath water. Uh-huh. And, see, I could say it in a normal, sound like a normal person, sounds but like a I normal humor, yes. completely crazy. Well, it's, I think it's kind of funny myself. That I, yeah, ma- I, do, I do, too. My <laughs> daughter was able to laugh about it, but at the time, it's kind of scary. Like, your mother's so out of it that uh, she's saying this with a straight face. Well, I, I, I think that my kids must—I I might be diagnosed the same way, then, with some of my uh, offhanded remarks. People think I'm a little strange. But it's not just well, that. Well, you know, I hear this a lot. A lot of people tell me, I think I'm manic depressive. And let me say this. It's like if you— are like a bomb going off, exploding in a million pieces, and other people are left to pick up the packages and put, mm-hmm. put, put a person back together, and you do this over and over again, several times a year for decades, and if you're put in a straitjacket and you're meant to stay that way so you won't hurt yourself, mm. and things like that, and especially being diagnosed from a doctor, being hospitalized, hospitalized is very necessary, hospitalization and medicine. So people saying to me, well, I think I'm manic depressive. No, I don't think so. Unless you've been diagnosed and, you know, it's really severe. It's much more severe than I was speeded up oh, or I said something embarrassing. Absolutely. Well, I I, uh, I have a weird personality. I don't think I'm manic, but uh, uh, that, uh, that could always change if I had diagnosis done, I guess. What would you say are some of the reoccurring uh, symptoms that someone that has a family member that perhaps is a little on the edge uh, and can consider this as a possibility? Well, one of the key things is the cycling, that they would change a lot. Right. That they could be talkative for, and I'm saying average, average of two to three months, the person would be very keyed up, then would get very depressed and just want to sleep all the time, hmm. get up take a shower, eat some food, and go back to bed. That would be the life of a depressed person. And then they may feel normal for three, four, or five months, and you think everything's all over when it happens again. So the key to diagnosing it is the cyclical nature of it going up and down and, you know, then having a normal period where everyone thinks, oh, you're completely normal. Hmm. What would you say is the most important fact that you want to convey in your book, How to Enjoy Life? Well, I think that the key to enjoying life is to do everything the doctors say. And it's hard at first. You know, it's like going on a diet where you say, well, I can't have chocolate and I can't have wine. Um, Your doctor is going to tell you uh, that you need to take these pills every day, morning and night, and there's a lot of pills that I take. And um, they slow you down a bit. They hinder getting done what you want to done. And they take away your euphoric highs. I don't hallucinate anymore. Hmm. And things like that. It's hard to get the person to keep taking them because they say, oh, I feel so good. I don't need the pills. What they don't understand is that they're going to crash and have a terrible depression if they don't stay on the pills all the time. Your subtitle, Your Tow Truck is Waiting. Significance and what's the meaning of that? Well, I went into uh, the uh, Kaiser Clinic mental health, and I parked my car, and I was about six inches too short, so I wanted to pull my foot in a little bit further inside the space, and I was driving with my left foot because I had my right foot in a cast, and I Mm -hmm. couldn't drive with that. So my foot slipped, and my car went through a wall. It's a concrete block wall 
all the way through, you know, the front hood went through it. Wow. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to be here forever. So I called a tow truck, and then I decided to go ahead with my therapy. And I had my hour therapy, and I came out, and the receptionist said, your tow truck is waiting. And that made it sound to everyone there that I was the idiot who drove through the wall because they're all gathered around looking at the tow truck pulling my car out. And on the front of my book is a pumpkin coach because I thought it was like Cinderella. You know, I felt like that, like I was the poor girl who had to scrub the floors. Hmm. And then I ended up as a princess. You know, my life just became wonderful as soon as I was able to regulate it and uh, become cycle-free. And recap for my listeners how you would describe this book. Well, it's a helpful book for someone who has a mental illness, and there are many of them, and they manifest in different ways. So it's very helpful to see one person's story of going through it and the support system I had and the fact that I take all the medicines on time in the way I'm supposed to. And it also helps people with other mental illnesses, as well as anyone who's struggling with something like alcoholism or you know, any lifestyle change that they need to make and they need to follow doctor's orders and stay on a program, it shows the or, or the uh, necessity of that. Then also to some unfortunate parents who've had a child die from this, the suicide mm. rate is very high. And, uh, you know, because you don't know what's going on and then it, you think you're getting well and then it happens again. Would, Episode tends to get worse than the previous one. Would you call your book inspirational? One? Yes, triumphant. I... Uh, I work hard and I triumph over it, and I have to talk about it a lot to my husband and to my friends, and they kind of know what's going on, but I have to explain to them that some days I don't feel well and can't do anything, but most of the time I'm doing very well. Beautifully done. I I am thankful that you have uh, penned this, 112 pages, and have spent the time to not only express the detail of your life, but also some uh, wonderful tips on getting diagnosis and cure, or at least under control, manic depressive disorder. You have entitled it, or have titled it again, How to Enjoy Life with Bipolar Disorder, and Your Tow Truck is Waiting is the subtitle. My author guest has been Ann Latta Donnan. Ann, where can my listeners get a copy of this book? Um, it's on eBay and it's on barnesandnoble.com. And are you developing a website or a fan page anywhere? Uh, yeah, I will be. I'm starting that tomorrow. Wonderful. Well, best of luck with this and on your future endeavors. I'm uh, wondering, are you going to maybe do a follow-up book to this one? Yeah, I would like to. If people write in, I'll put my email address in the book, and they can email me and let me know, um, you know, things that they go on with them. And I can work with a psychiatrist who can give the medical background, you know, because I'm just a patient. I'm not an expert the way someone who studies the illness is. I'm just someone who's had it. And I like to say that when I was in the hospital, I was with a lot of other patients with other mental illnesses, and I came to know them and how they were treated. And, again, the most important thing was for them to stay off drugs to have a pure diagnosis. And thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. Again, the book, How to Enti- How, excuse me, How to Enjoy Life with Bipolar Disorder, guest, author, Anne Latta Donnan. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. My thank pleasure. You. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.